I do tend to think that women or men, well, most of us are maybe not as intentional about our personal life as, as we do our professional life. I'm very lucky to have an incredibly supportive partner. If you want to have a high-performing career, then there's only so much time that you have. And a lot of help and support will be required to manage a high-functioning career and also, you know, a happy and fulfilled household. So for me, that's the biggest determinant for how I could even execute having a career that's demanding and still be able to be a good wife and be a good mother. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Susli Lee is a partner at Monks Hill Ventures, a venture capital firm investing in early stage tech startups in Southeast Asia. Before Monks Hill, Susli co-founded Erudify, a Y Combinator-backed tech-enabled education financing company with a presence in Indonesia and the Philippines. Born and raised in Jakarta, Susli is a mom of two and is an advocate for supporting women in tech. Hi, Susli. Afternoon. So nice to finally meet you after all this time on the internet. <laughs> hey, hi, Amanda. Uh, likewise. Well, I have seen so much about you, Danasita, and Monks Hill throughout the course of my very short career in tech. I feel like the first time I really heard about you guys is in maybe mid-2020. I was working in the tech ecosystem, and I think you guys were one of our clients or partners at my previous company. Mm -hmm. So I've been following you since you were working at Danachita, but very nice to speak with you in a, in a different context as a female VC. I think really the first time I came across you, I was really just impressed to see a female founder, a strong female founder from the region. And I was so curious to hear about your personal background. I've done my own research, but you know, I, I want to ask you, what was your childhood like? Yeah, sure. So I was born and raised in Jakarta. That's where my family still lives. So, you know, my, both my parents originally came from Sumatra and uh, they came to Jakarta in search for you know, better livelihood, ended up starting, my dad started his own company. And I have three other siblings. I'm the oldest of four. So, you know, went to, did all of my early childhood education all the way to high school in Jakarta. And so my childhood was, I don't know, a bit lackluster and a bit sort of <laughs> maybe kind of par for the course. So a little bit of background about my family. My, both my parents are high school graduates. And, you know, I think they grew up in large families. Both of them have seven siblings each. And so I think the question of betterment for the next generation, you know, was always a high priority. And so I think my childhood was essentially, you know, in hindsight, was, was kind of dotted with all kinds of opportunities that, that I think my parents' generation lacked. And this kind of dovetails a little bit towards, I don't know if you call this childhood, but, you know, I, I was first to attend university from kind of the generation of my family. Obviously now, you know, that's much more commonplace in the next gen, but that was that I attribute a lot to my parents' kind of commitment to providing better opportunities, educational and otherwise, to, to me and my siblings. When you look back at like your childhood, do you think that you spent a lot of time studying? Were your parents really strict <laughs> about that or did it manifest in other ways? <laughs> Yeah, look, I mean, you know, I I did well in school. I think a lot of that was because I fundamentally enjoyed learning, nerd alert. Uh, I can't believe I'm admitting to that. But my parents were very hands-off, so not at all, you know, tiger parents in, in many ways. I think my mother attempted to sort of help us with our schoolwork up until we were primary one, age six or seven, and then quickly gave up, right? <laughs> uh, you know, between, between kind of managing the household, you know, and having four children. I think she just left us to fend for ourselves academically. But I would say that I've always had a passion for learning. It's a key value. And even today, you know, I continue to want to kind of pick up new skills. 
but it wasn't just academic. If I look at my childhood, it was it was also you know to my point earlier about privileges and opportunities. It was also the opportunity to explore you know new languages, musical instruments. You know, you're a typical Asian parent in that sense, <laughs> which I'm super grateful for in hindsight. But at the time, you know, I remember kind of being shuttled back and forth, uh, you know, from lessons to lessons. But I really actually did enjoy it. Yeah. How about you? What were your personal interests in your childhood? Maybe up until high school, what did you like to do when you had free time not studying or not in classes? Oh, well, my, I think I was, you know, in hindsight, I think I was quite a boring child. <laughs> I don't have any, you know, I don't have any kind of sort of crazy stories to, to share from my childhood. In many ways, outside of academics, you know, I, you know, I did ballet, which I enjoyed, but it was, it, it remained a, a hobby. I did a lot of music, so I played, you know, three different instruments. None of them very well, I have to say. <laughs> and, you know, picked up things like calligraphy, et cetera. But, you know, yeah, nothing, nothing particularly interesting to, to share, to be honest. I was a pretty boring kid. I did well in school, but, you know, I like to think that I was also kind of maybe, you know, was, was also quite social. But, yeah, pretty run-of-the-mill childhood. The only thing I would say is, you know, I did grow up and this is kind of dating myself, right? And towards the end of my high school, the Asian financial crisis happened. And that precipitated a lot of social changes, political changes in, in Indonesia. And that, if anything, if I look back now, you know, that was sort of the beginning of a divergent path than perhaps what was expected, which kind of led to all kinds of other things that I'm happy to kind of talk to as well. I'm curious, did any of the interests that you have stick any instrument maybe singing or dancing or nothing really yes yes so so piano stuck <laughs> you know many times in my adult life afterwards I ended up kind of trying to pick up piano in, in various forms and so as an adult you know I completed kind of the examinations again like super nerdy I picked up you know how to play jazz piano and I picked up I picked up a, a vocal uh, singing as well so I do you know classical singing and art pieces, art songs in, you know, European languages. So that's been a real mainstay up until I had children. You know, I, I would say that I would sometimes even put together you know, amateur recital just for fun uh, with a group of friends. And I think you mentioned the Asian, the Asian financial crisis. And I think that also took you guys overseas to study, which I think is a divergent path that you mentioned. What mm, was that like yeah, for you? That's right. um, were you very... In Willing to study overseas? What were your impressions when yeah, you heard no, <laughs> of the plans? That's that's a very good question. So I think it, it was never the intention on my parents' part and my part to not complete my schooling in in Indonesia. So I was I was kind of halfway into eleventh grade, so you know a year and a half shy of completing high school when the Asian financial crisis happened, and given all the things that were happening and a lot of the uncertainties. I think my parents made a very abrupt decision to send me and my sister, who was a year younger than me, abroad to Australia, to a boarding school, in fact. And so, you know, it was less than two months between us being told about this decision and starting school in a completely new environment, totally foreign, away from family, in a small town, right? Like I grew up in Jakarta, which is a metropolis. And I ended up attending boarding school in a town of 3,000, 40 minutes outside of Melbourne. So it was a huge change, you know, happening at the end of my teenage years, which is also formative years when it, when it comes to kind of your development as a young adult. In hindsight, I think it was for the better and I could see the benefit of it, but at the time it was very difficult. Adjustment. And when you are adjusting to the whole experience, what did you think would be the outcome? Did you know at that time that your life would actually take you outside of Indonesia? Or did you expect that you'd come back home, go to an Indonesian university? At the time, to be honest, there wasn't a lot of forward thinking. Once I started in Australia, and this was in an international baccalaureate program in a boarding school, the most obvious direction was to continue my university education in Australia. And, you know, I did get some scholarships to, to attend you know, Australian universities, but, and maybe this is a, a function of how the exposure that I had culturally growing up, you know, there was a lot of American TV when I was growing up, 
And so I became sort of primed to this idea of, oh, you know, should I consider university in the US? So I ended up applying for it, but not really expecting anything. It was just going through the motion. I remember preparing for the SAT only for two weeks, right? Like, I mean, like, think about it. Like, these days, people prepare for years. And you yes. pay, <laughs> you know, you pay people to kind of help you do this. And like, you enroll in classes. My sister and I sort of found out that, hey, apparently this is a requirement. So let's go study for it. <laughs> so that just shows you kind of the lack of preparedness and, you know, information that we had at the time. But there was sort of this idea that why not, right? And that was really the mentality that went mm-hmm. into it. So it's really yeah. a shot in the dark and you guys weren't really expecting anything because you already had the Australian universities anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which was, uh, you know, a much more kind of known path and there was a lot of kind of support to kind of complete that process. Yeah. But as as history turns out, I ended up going to the US to study uh, and that's definitely another contributor to sort of the divergent path that I was saying earlier. Cool. So you got the offers to go to the U.S. I'm sure you were all very excited because you weren't expecting anything out of it. What happened once you arrived in the U.S.? What was life like? And what did you look forward to? So I I remember, so my sister and I are very close in age. And going to Australia meant that because Australian academic calendar runs from January to November, as opposed to Indonesia, which is sort of more July to June. I ended up dropping half a year and she ended up, you know, getting bumped half a year. So we ended up, you know, despite being a year apart, we ended up being the same class. And we were very, very fortunate that we were admitted into Yale for the same class. And so I had a person with me to kind of start that journey. You know, my my, my parents didn't come out. So we kind of went by ourselves and did all the, you know, international student orientation. I ended up moving into a dorm and, and did, doing all of that largely just having each other. But again, in hindsight, you know, how lucky was I to kind of have a family member, somebody I trust, somebody that I was close to, to kind of navigate, again, like a completely new environment that I didn't, you know, really didn't have any other support network for. That's true. It's rare for people to even find someone, maybe even from the same country, sometimes in the same year, like in a similar major that they would actually get along with. But you had your sister. (laughs) Yeah, I did. I did. Um, so I, I was very lucky. And, and to your point, right, I think that year we were the only two Indonesians who were admitted to Yale. So it wasn't like there was oh, anyone wow. else. <laughs> That's true. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if yeah, anything, if, yeah, she yeah. Wasn't, if she wasn't there, you'd have been alone. <laughs> I would I would have been. I mean, I'm sure I would have made friends with other people, but it was nice to kind of have a familiar face. Right. <laughs> Yeah. How yep. did studying in the U.S. you know influence you? I know you'd already studied boarding school in Australia, but I think that was a, sh- I guess, a relatively shorter time in a more enclosed environment like a boarding school. But you're in the U.S., way, way far away. You're there for, I guess, four years. How did that influence you and the way you thought about things in general, life, yeah. your career? I am so grateful for the time that I had. At Yale. I mean, it was formative in so many different ways. I was in a liberal arts education environment where the first two years, you know, we were free to choose from any classes, any majors, right? There was no impetus to kind of focus on one thing and then only take classes in, in, in one thing. And so what that meant was, you know, there was this orgasm just incredibly intellectual conversations and topics that I had previously not been exposed to and being surrounded by professors and peers that are just, you know, I was really the average person there. And that exposure, I think, cultivated a couple of things. One is a lifelong thirst for knowledge and then be a lifelong desire for excellence. Because, you know, when you see and when you're kind of immersed in that environment, you know, it's almost like you can't help it, right? Like, this is so rich. And it's still, you know, it still today provides me a lot of thought of thought uh, when it comes to thinking about life in general, thinking about issues that have nothing to do with my training. I, I think it just made me a much more critically thoughtful person in a way that perhaps wouldn't have been the case if I had kind of spent those formative years elsewhere. What do you mean by lifelong thirst for excellence? What would you define that as? I think this is where we as human beings are creatures of of community and habit. 
And the way we set standards, whether it's for behaviors and including for, for excellence, I think is a function of what we see, the function of the role models that we have, the, a function of, you know, what the potential can be. And those years for me, surrounded by sort of that level of excellence, I, I couldn't help but kind of crave wanting to operate at that level of excellence. And when I talk about excellence, I think it's, it's you know, not just a mix of kind of intellectual curiosity, but it's also, you know, how do you communicate? How do you prioritize? How do you make decisions? How do you determine, you know, where you want to spend your energies on, right? Do you want to become an expert in this subject matter? Or, you know, do you want to be, you know, good at XYZ goals? And just seeing, it's like the analogy to my mind is like seeing kind of how professional athletes perform kind of pushes you to kind of go beyond the amateur level. And this is again, you know, this is a repeated theme that I see when people enter workforce and join organizations that are also of high excellence, right? It kind of sets the tone for how they want to behave as a professional because they've seen that level of excellence at play. So yeah, that's kind of what I, what I mean with the strive of excellence. And I guess you also mentioned that you have tried to pursue excellence in sort of that definition throughout your career, throughout your life. How do you learn to operate at that level? Is there a way that you, do you try to emulate what people have done? You copy some sort of tactics that they use. I know there are some people who watch videos and try to copy the way people speak, but what was your way of trying to pursue <laughs> that excellence? So one is seeing by doing, right? Surrounding yourself with people who do this much better than you. And they can be mentors. They can be people professionally that are kind of like, you know, a few years out from you. It's really being surrounded by people who do this well and learning from them, right? Learning either by osmosis or learning by specifically developing relationships where you're inviting that level of feedback. I'm a big believer of, of choosing your team and not, not the company you work for or work with. Right, is is choosing the man your manager is choosing you know people who are invested your own in your own development, and then of course there are other ways such as you know generally if you're intellectually curious about the world, there are all kinds of resources, especially nowadays. Right, I remember when I was starting university, you know we were just beginning to use laptops, <laughs> and I remember actually I, I remember actually you know a, a calculus professor you know standing in front of the lecture room talking about this new thing called Google. Uh, you know, nowadays, you know, these things are so widely, I mean, we have an information overflow. In fact, if anything, we need to be smarter about what information we choose to consume. But lack of information is no longer a barrier. So, you know, in order to become excellent at something, in order to become knowledgeable at something, you know, it's now a matter of focus and desire more so than kind of structural barriers. And then, so you graduated from university. What did you look forward to? Did you have a picture for what you wanted your career to look like and where that would Absolutely be? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. I was clueless as they come. My first job was as a management consultant for a you know multinational company based out of the New York office at the time. And, and I joked that you know a huge reason for doing so was because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And being a consultant sounded like a great way to learn about a lot of different things in a short period of time. It felt like a great way to spend, you know, a couple of years picking up skills that could be transferable. And the glamour of sort of, you know, hopping between projects, you know, traveling places, et cetera, was definitely appealing. Although little did I know after I started that traveling meant, you know, going to cold, wintry Toronto in January and having to stay underground most of the time or, you know, driving up from New York to some parts of Connecticut on a regular basis, right? It wasn't necessarily as glamorous as I thought it would be, but I would say that I did learn a ton of skills during that time. What do you think were the most sort of critical experiences in your first job that you think shaped you today? There's a theme here. It's people. It's working in, you know, the nature of consulting is you work in small groups, right? And typically uh, a group has kind of people of different seniorities and people with different subject matter expertise. And it was kind of, you know, this whole theme about excellence, again, essentially being part of small agile teams that are super high performing 
was also very formative in setting the tone and expectations for what my professional, you know, the, the professional standards I should aspire to. And then I think after a while, you were promoted to APAC chief of staff. And I think based on what I've seen, they sort of created a role for you. What is that experience like for you? Yeah. Amanda, you've done a really good job doing your homework. Um, <laughs> so let me walk you through that, the backstory. So having been a consultant for four years and moved from, you know, the U.S. to Asia Pacific, I was kind of hitting a bit of a wall because deep down inside, I wanted to explore more. I had a lot of questions that I wanted to answer in terms of what my longer term career goal should be and how I wanted to spend my time uh, as a professional. So I wasn't ready to commit to being a consultant and to be on the partnership track. And so I was very honest with my, I guess, the HR department as well as the partners that I was working with at the time. I was incredibly honest about how I felt, what I hoped to still explore. And to their credit, they essentially looked at me and said, hey, you know, we are looking to sort of create this role. Would you like to consider it? And I had carte blanche to write my own JD for the first Asia Pacific chief of staff role. And so for context, Oliver Wyman did have a chief of staff covering North America as well as Europe at the time. Asia Pacific was sort of the emerging region. And so there were some structure already in place, but I get to kind of create this role for myself. And, you know, it was switching from a consulting role to an operator role, right? For most folks, I think consulting is very much an external facing role. It's very client facing, but the inner workings of a consulting firm is much more like, you know, working behind the scene of any large multinational organization. So I learned things like fund transfer pricing. I learned things like, you know, how do you do, you know, talent development and training for, you know, a consulting partnership. I, I learned things about how do you open new offices in different parts of the world? You know, I learned things about how do you, how do, you do revenue forecasting, et cetera. But most importantly, I learned how to influence without authority because in many cases, the chief of staff role typically is not, it's not a, a PNL or functional role where you have a team under you, right? It's a role that bridges typically, you know, operational functions with kind of the business or strategic side of the organization. You know, how do you translate business strategy into operational sort of goals? I was kind of sitting in between those. So it was a lot of stakeholder management. It was a lot of pushing for the organization to achieve goals without necessarily having the authority to do that. And I think that was, again, you know, as somebody in, in her late 20s, super important learnings that are transferable in any other organization. How do you influence without authority then? Would you have an example? And how would you try to do that in your role? I mean, it took me a while to understand that fundamentally that was kind of the name of the game. I think it all comes down to people management. So this is stakeholder management. When you don't have direct authority or, you know, contractual ownership or PNL ownership over, over any specific function, it really comes down to how do you build alignment and how do you create social capital that allows you to achieve a common goal? So part of it is being very clear of what those goals should be. Second is identifying what are the different interests that might be at play, right? A head of department might have a different interest from, you know, a consulting partner, might have a different interest from, you know, a regional director. So understanding kind of is stakeholder mapping in many ways. And then it's communications. It's, you know, sequencing of certain action items, right? Like if, if A needs to be done, then, you know, B needs to be informed that, you know what I'm saying? Like understanding how decision-making happens in a large organization and understanding the limitations of that, I think ultimately allowed me to navigate it. I wouldn't say, you know, looking back now, I wouldn't say that, I mean, I would say that there are definitely things that I could have done better. I could have been maybe more assertive. I could have been maybe less deferential 
to people who I report to and, you know, be more of a thought leader. This is one thing I learned. You know, you don't get promoted into a role without having acted like you're already in that role. Right. And so I think to my younger self, I would have said, start behaving more like an equal partner to everyone in the room instead of just trying to facilitate some goals. But yeah, it's not easy. (laughs) I can imagine. And I'm trying to map it in my head. It's getting really complex. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it is. It is really complex in many ways because you're so many different and sometimes conflicting interests that you have to kind of juggle. And right. even personalities In service of, of a common goal. <laughs> yes, personalities of people. Absolutely. <laughs> was it ever hard to do your role as a woman? Or do you actually feel like being a woman helped you facilitate all of this? You know, the question of being a woman and how that affected my work it never really came up. And this is me jumping ahead now up until the point where I was contemplating motherhood. I think I've been very fortunate that all throughout my career, I've been in primarily male-dominated environments. And so, you know, I've learned, I think, to adapt and to function within that environment. To the credit of, of the people that I've worked with, you know, I've never been made to feel like being a woman was anything more or less. For the most part, I can't remember an instance where that, that's been an issue. That said, now that I look back, right, I was, at the time when I was chief of staff at Oliver Wyman in Asia Pacific, there were about 20 partners and only one was a female partner. And so oftentimes I was the only other woman in the room with the partnership deciding on, you know, firm strategy, or whatever, you know, important decisions. I'd like to think that being a woman colored my perspective in a positive way that allowed me to contribute. But I can't, in, in honesty, kind of attribute anything specifically to being a woman beyond the fact that, you know, being a woman is kind of just part of my overall identity that I bring to work. I mean, I think that's a good thing, right? I think that was similar to the experience of Patricia of Seedstars that I Mm. uh, interviewed before. She said she doesn't feel like it affected her personally at the time as well. Mm. Yeah, but, you know, but I'm not, you know, in in no way do I want to necessarily trivialize the experiences, again, the lived experiences of many Mm. women, right? We're not one category, one stereotype, right? Every woman has has her own story to tell. And so, you know, I'm sure... I'm sure that there are other divergent stories when it comes to this question. From Definitely. Other people. Hopefully I get to have more experiences also and see what other people have experienced throughout their careers as well. But I think after Oliver Wyman, you moved on to work in investments on and off and then consulting at like the World Bank yeah. and ADB. What were the notable experiences from those you know, shifts in your career and what would prompt each shift? Yep. Yeah, so this is the bit that kind of doesn't get, this is the color you don't get when you're just looking at somebody's sort of professional trajectory, right? So after leaving Oliver Wyman, having spent six years there in multiple roles, I decided to go back to graduate school. And this was a very deliberate decision. And I pursued a three-year degree, which is a joint degree between an MBA at Wharton and a public policy slash international relations degree from Johns Hopkins. And the thesis, so I, you know, I came in and, you know, those, those graduate school years were also incredibly formative because I think it allowed me the time and space to step back and reflect on what the next chapter should be. And so I had a thesis going in, which was functionally, I've been a consultant and I've done a little bit of operations. Should I explore other functional roles such as doubling down on operations or investments. And then my next question was seeing the things that were happening in the early 2010s in Southeast Asia and particularly in Indonesia, should I be thinking about building a career doubling down on Southeast Asia with Indonesia as the nexus? And so that was the hypothesis going in. And I spent a lot of time on campus kind of experimenting and you know thinking this through. And I spent all of the free time that I had being back in Southeast Asia. So that's, you know, whether it's an internship with with an investor, whether it's doing projects, whether it's traveling, I basically spent most of the time that I could away from campus in Southeast Asia. 
So it's very thesis driven. And over that period of time, I essentially narrowed it down to I wanted to build something because I, I discovered that I cared about a problem. And actually, this is a problem I've cared about for a long time. And this is access to higher education for Southeast Asia. And this goes back to my time at Yale when I looked around, and we talked about this earlier, when I looked around and I said, oh, there are not that many Indonesians here. Like, I wonder why that's the case. We are the fourth most populous country in the world. From a population-adjusted standpoint, why are we so underrepresented in elite universities, in high-performing, you know, international, multinational corporations, in the international scene globally? Why are we so underrepresented, right? When I look at China, India, Brazil, they have those issues, but Indonesia was lagging far, far behind if you look at the statistics. And I'd always suspected that access to better education was part of the problem. It certainly doesn't explain all of it, but you know, I would have liked to see more representation from Indonesians. And, and, and that sort of led me eventually to starting my own company. And can you fast forward to 2017 when you started Dana Tita? How did you find your co-founder? Did you meet him before coming up with the idea for the startup or after? How did you know he was the so one? He, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. What an important question. So he found me to his credit. And I'm so very glad that he did. And not only did he, did he find me through the alumni network, uh, through the Wharton alumni network, to be precise, he found me and he reached out to me. And it was a meeting of minds. We're two very different people, but we were very intentional in getting to know each other. And we discovered that we are aligned on our vision, mission, and values. And beyond that, we are also aligned on the way we communicate and confront issues, right? So this is communication and confrontational style. If I think back to my marriage prep days, right? Like that's one of the questions that they ask, right? Can you identify and, and communicate to your partner what your communication style is and what your confrontational style is? Because that really helps when the going gets rough. How are you going to deal with it? Are you going to clamp up or are you going to want to talk the, the little problem to death? Do you need time to sort of process things or do you like prefer addressing something up front, right? So my co-founder Naga and I were very aligned on those practical but very important issues. We had we spent a very deliberate period of time to get to know each other. So this was about nine months where we tested, right, what it's like to work with each other before deciding to go full time, full on. When you guys met, was he already considering you as a co-founder or did it also take some time before you was like, okay, let's spend X amount of months testing whether we're right for each other as co-founders? Uh, it was probably more the latter. Hmm. I think, you know, we were both interested in financial inclusion. We were both interested and committed to Southeast Asia. You know, he comes from a finance background as well, more from the banking background. And so there was sort of that shared, right, sort of shared desire in terms of what our professional goals are and the openness to sort of consider building something together. But it took us a while, I think, to sort of really suss each other out, right? I remember very deep conversations very early on about our motivations, our commitments, you know, what other options do we have on the table? And, you know, you know, how are we thinking through all those different options? What are some of our red lines? What are some things you're willing to do, you're not willing to do? What are you optimizing for? Like all kinds of, you know, really deep questions that I think all co-founders or potential co-founders should have. So at the end of the nine months, you guys were sure you would work with each other. But during those nine months, were you guys also looking at other sort of co-founders or was it really nine months deliberately, whether you two worked together well? Well, uh, at the time, Naga was still finishing up at Wharton and he actually had another offer on the table for a full-time role. And so it was sort of, let's get to know each other. But, you know, we were deliberately kind of not, not forcing the question, mm. right? So there was a very clear end to that. <laughs> there was a very clear, which is like his graduation, right? Which is a very clear end to this kind of testing period. So I had already committed, I think, in my head to doing this. And I was doing essentially a part-time role 
helping a a nonprofit organization kind of figure out what their investment strategy and function should look like. But I was basically already kind of committed to wanting to try something. But to be honest, right, like without Naga, and again, I'm so very grateful that he reached out that one fine summer day, <laughs> whatever it was now, you know, we found, I think we we recognize that we have complementary skill sets and it was a very deliberate decision to go ahead with this particular pairing. Yeah. What were the early days like, you know, after the testing, when you started to try to build the company? Uh, so the early days, oh, the early days was, you know, trying to, without any money and deliberately not raising any money because we, we didn't want to, you know, we wanted to kind of validate a few things first. We went on to like, try and see if we could hire a few people for free. <laughs> that was one what the early days. Was like, the early days was like, <laughs> Yeah, so we ended up, and this is a funny story, and I'll tell you this, one of the one of the first people who joined us for free is now a general manager running an entire country for us, right? Like, I tell people, never underestimate the power of getting like-minded, mission-driven individuals to join you in the days where you have nothing else to offer but a dream. So we ended up getting a few folks who are either university students or just graduating who essentially was okay. They were okay kind of taking no pay for like, I don't know, it was like six months or something on a part-time basis to just help us figure out if we can validate whether people wanted affordable financing for higher education. And some of those, actually all of them later on stayed with the company. Uh, you know, some left after a year, some left after three, and some are still there. So <laughs> the early days was essentially like hankering down in a co-working space trying to make sense of what we're doing and going on campus a lot, trying to talk to faculty members, admissions office, scholarships office, students, their parents, doing focus groups, setting up booths and like just trying to get as much foot traffic as we can to understand what our target users' pain points are. So it was a lot of hitting the pavement in those early days. I remember just hanging out on, on campus a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, those were those were fun days. I still have pictures from those days of like setting up booths during, you know, student fairs or like admission day and just trying to get in front of as many students as possible and understand if what we're trying to do is something that the market wants. And then what was the hardest part of being a founder during those years? I think being a first-time founder in particular was daunting because there is no playbook. It is easily the hardest thing I've ever done. Because being a founder is so incredibly personal. It reveals a lot about who you are in a way that's uncomfortable. When it's a job, there's a structure you can fall back to. There is kind of other people that you can fall back on. There is, you know, leaving the company if, if it comes to it. But when you're a founder, right, this thing is, is something you birthed from scratch. You have to take responsibility for so much of its success and so much of its failures. I mean, all of it, really, especially the failures. It was just an, an incredibly self-revelatory experience in terms of what risks I'm willing to take, in terms of things that are important to me, in terms of what I'm good at and what I'm not very good at. There's nowhere to hide behind. And so I think I wasn't prepared for how personal the experience of being a founder would be. And I'm sure to some extent you can relate to this because it is, you know, it almost feels like it is an indictment on who you are, right? It's very difficult to separate the company from you, the individual. So, yeah, <laughs> the buck stops with you, right? There's no one else. If something isn't getting done, then you have to do it. Right. Uh, and so it was an incredible responsibility being a founder. Was there, like in your journey of being a founder, was there any time during the pitching or in your experience building the company where you actually felt the difficulty on the other side of the table yourself trying to get investments and mostly being faced with maybe male partners or male counterparts in other companies? Because I feel like yeah. uh, it's a lot yeah. of inspiration for what you're doing now as a female VC and a female partner at that. Yeah. So so my co-founder and I split the fundraising kind of 
duties relatively equally, or at least we could be interchangeable. Mm-hmm. And I felt that maybe, again, this is a function of kind of my career experiences where I've, I've got, I think I've gotten comfortable operating and adapting to a primarily like a male dominant environment. So I didn't feel that being a woman or that my gender was ever held against me when it comes to fundraising or even frankly, for that matter, when it comes to recruiting and retaining talent or being a manager, right, in terms of being seen as a, as a senior leader. And I think in that sense, I was very fortunate. It is also true that throughout my fundraising history, I never pitched to a female partner. Across any geographies, right? Uh, we were at Y Combinator. We also raised from regional investors, U.S. investors, as well as lo- local investors in Indonesia. At the time, they just weren't female partners. And I think that's a shame in the sense that I think the lack of diversity is a shame, you know, whether it be gender, whether it be, you know, different kind of, you know, professional experience or even, you know, academic credentials or sector domain expertise, right? Like, I just think that when decision-making happens in a relatively homogeneous environment, we lose the richness of perspective. The flashpoint for me where kind of being a woman was maybe a bit more challenging for me was actually related to life stage. So just before COVID hit, I had my first child. I was kind of late in the game for having children. It was, it was also later in life. So there are other challenges that comes with that. I had trouble navigating coming back to work from maternity leave. And I remember struggling to find someone to speak with because the female founders that I see around me for the most part, tend to be a bit younger. So they're just not, you know, they're not experiencing the same kind of life stage challenges. Or they may not be, you know, building a VC-backed business, which I think introduces a certain level of pressure and, yeah, and challenges that are maybe a little bit different. So I looked long and hard at women founders who I felt like I could speak with. And to their credit, right, I I found a lot of male mentors and, and role models that who are fathers, who actually also did give me very good advice. But I was kind of looking for, again, right, a diversity of, right. of, of advice. And I could only find one. And I was somewhat disappointed by that. And that later on became another reason for wanting to become a female VC. What is it like to sort of try to build your career while also having to build your life? I mean, you had to get, I mean, not had to, but you, you got married and then you had two children. I mean, that is a whole other part of life that you have to work on. I mean, to get married, you have to yeah. spend time dating. You have to figure out whether the person <laughs> is the right person for you. You have to yeah. go get married. You have to plan to get children, all these things. I mean, yeah. That takes a lot of time and mental effort. <laughs> it does. <laughs> oh my, this could be a subject for another another podcast altogether. So I have a lot of respect and empathy for women whose kind of choices in life are different. I don't think that we all need to do the same thing, that we all need to get married and have children. But also it's perfectly legitimate if that is what you desire. I do tend to think that women or men, you know, regardless, I do think that most of us are maybe not as intentional about our personal life as as we do our professional life. And so you're right that, you know, a certain amount of planning or at least being aware of some of the considerations, I think is important. In my case, I'm very lucky to have an incredibly supportive partner. I think that whether you're a man or woman, if you have, if you want to have a high performing career, then by the law of physics, <laughs> there's only so much time that you have, right? And so some ruthless prioritization and a lot of help and support will be required to manage a high functioning career and also, you know, a happy and fulfilled household, whether or not you have children. And so I think having a supportive life partner is so incredibly important. I mean, it is the one decision that makes or breaks your your quality of life, right? And so that's kind of the biggest takeaway. And to me, you know, it's it's also finding a partner who doesn't only tolerate these ambitions that you have, but actively supports you, right? Like, they are genuinely happy and willing to kind of be a partner 
in this journey where you're going to have to make lots and lots of compromises. So for me, that's the biggest kind of, you know, the single largest determinant <laughs> for how I could even contemplate, you know, much less execute having a, a career that's demanding and still be able to be a good wife and be a good mother. And I, I fully expect that there's some days where I'm going to have to drop the ball on, on one or more of these kind of aspects of life. And I guess going back to your current role in BC, what was the biggest misconception um, about BC that you had when you joined yeah, back in the yep, BC scene? Yep, yep. Can I have two? <laughs> yeah, you can go. So the first one is, it's not that I didn't know it, but I don't think I fully appreciated the fact that VC is entirely about relationships. Entirely. It's about people, especially when you're talking about early stage VC. It's about identifying, building relationships and, you know, managing the interpersonal dynamics with founders, with your team members, with your LPs, right? Your investors, with the people you're trying to hire either for your own organization or the, for the portfolio companies that, that you're trying to help recruit for. It's managing those relationships and dynamics with fellow board members, downstream co-investors. I mean, it is just an entirely people-driven business. This is why I think that you fundamentally have to find enjoyment in learning about people, you know, being curious about them being curious about why they want to do what they want to do, why they want to build what they want to build, being astute about assessing where their strengths and weaknesses are as it relates to their ability to build and scale a company. And then having kind of the empathy, right? To realize that this is a really, really hard thing that people are trying to do. And VC is a really, really long game where, you know, what goes around comes around, Right. And so it's it's that realization that I think I, I just didn't fully appreciate. The other thing is that founders are not the product. Founders are the clients, right? I think, you know, it's very easy to sort of misconstrue founders and companies as being kind of the product that you try to sell to your investors as a fund. But my learning is, is actually quite the other way around. Investors to the fund are partners with you to try and identify and help founders to grow something out of nothing. And I think that orientation changes the, the dynamic of the relationship, changes the way you prioritize, it changes the way you interact, and it introduces a certain level of, again, like empathy and respect that I think is crucial to the founder-investor relationship. And I guess to wrap up, I ask one question to every person who comes onto the podcast and I speak with, and that is outside of work, what is one thing you want to achieve in your personal life? That doesn't have to be something that you achieve this month, this week, or even this year, <laughs> or not even in the next five years or even the next 10. So anything that comes to mind at whatever time horizon, no matter how big or small, what is that thing that you want to do and accomplish in your personal oh, life? Oh, dear. Again, like, can I have more than one? Okay, anyway, okay, I, should, I, I should can give it. you one. Oh, and a half. <laughs> one, and one and a half. One and a half. When I think about what gives me just pure, unadulterated joy, right? Like the thing that I gravitate towards when I'm feeling stressed out, or or when I'm just kind of like overwhelmed, is is music. And I would love to again, you know, whenever I have bandwidth, whenever that is, I have two young children, so this may this may not happen for a long, long time. I would like to go back to sort of some level of semi-professional singing again. And this is not like, I'm nowhere. I mean, semi-professional is probably also too generous of a word. <laughs> slightly above slightly above being amateur, right? I would love to, you know, not only train to get better, but also, you know, I used to be part of an acapella group mm -hmm. and I used to be a conductor as well for a choir. I would oh, love yeah. to sort of do more of that. I think there's, and this is again, like totally orthogonal <laughs> to what we're talking about, but I think there's something, there's something deeply spiritual when the human voices collectively come together to produce something out of nothing, it just touches you in ways that I think are just so universal. So if I could, again, like whenever this is, I would love to kind of go back, go back to doing that in a semi-regular basis on a semi-regular basis. <laughs> what is the second thing or well, the half after this one thing? 
the other thing is, oh man, you know, I, one of the things that I regret is probably too strong of a word. One of the things that I wish I'd done more, and I've done a couple of this, but I, I wish that I'd taken time away to live with people in a completely different environment. So in my life, I've taken a couple of sabbaticals and two of those I spent, you know, in like deepest, darkest Peru, literally. <laughs> literally dark. Uh, like mean? Paddington, where, where Paddington Bear came from. I, I, you know, <laughs> I, spent, I spent quite a few months in, in, um, in, in the mountains of Peru, living with a local family and really trying to understand and live their, their way of life, right? I think there's something, again, sort of deeply liberating and it, it feeds into this sort of common humanity that we have when you try to put yourself in the shoes of others and really try to understand where they're coming from. Even, even if you're just observing, right? But being immersed in that environment, that's fundamentally different from being a tourist. And so I don't know when else in my life I could do this. I did it once in Peru. I did it another time in Nicaragua. I, I would love to do more of that, right? This is kind of the, I was trained as a development economist. And so I've always had an interest in, in how people live and how economies work in developing markets. But, but that cultural element of just, you know, just being in an environment that's completely foreign to you and yet understanding that there are commonalities as human beings, you know, even as different cultures intersect. I think that makes you just a much more informed global citizen, especially in this day when everything is so on the face of it, globally interconnected, but we've never been, I think, more isolated in some ways. Right. Like even if the internet oh, yeah. can show you all sorts of videos and photos, it's still nothing close to what you see in real life, even though you think it might be close to what's really there. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. The abundance of choice can oftentimes, it's the paradox of choice, right? Can oftentimes actually lead us to something sort of the opposite of it. It can often be much more limiting than it is freeing. Well, thank you so much, Sissy. I feel like I learned so much from you. I feel like there are a bunch of things I'm going to take here for myself as well. And yeah, thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm really glad that no, I was happy uh, here. Absolutely. I, you know, I'm very grateful for the invitation of the time and space to sort of share my story. Yeah, I look forward to more avenues like this. I'd love to yeah, I'd love to just hear other people's stories as well. So thank you for doing this for, for all of us. 